you have your Bible with you, you want to use one in the pew in front of you, turn with me to the gospel according to Mark, New Testament book of Mark chapter 8. This morning, we will be reading all of verses 1 to 30. If you're a guest with us, we normally work our way through this book verse by verse. This morning, we will be reading the largest chunk of scripture that we will read in one morning. And for that reason, I'm going to ask again, if you don't have your Bible, to grab one in the pew. Whatever we put up on the screen, it won't be 30 verses. And you're going to need to be able to see all 30 verses. I'm not going to be able to read all 30 verses multiple times. I plan to read them once and then refer to them many times. So in order to engage what God's saying, as I point things out along the way, you're going to need God's word open before you to check and make sure I'm not just up here making stuff up, right? So Mark chapter 8, we're going to read verses 1 to 30 and witness one of the most important scenes in the entire book of Mark when we get to a turning point. With all that in mind, let's read verses 1 to 30. This is the word of the Lord. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way and some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place. And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves. And having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they, that's the disciples, had forgotten to bring bread. And they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear it? Do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. 
And he said to them, do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Vincent Van Gogh enjoyed getting under people's skin. He enjoyed bucking the expectations for artists. His style, or the style that he developed later in his career, was called impasto. What that entails is a thick layer of paint. Sometimes he would just squirt gobs of paint straight onto the canvas He wanted to get his brush strokes more noticeable. He wanted this thick, special texture to the painting. People in his day wanted very fine, thin, hardly noticeable brush strokes. But Vincent van Gogh had other ideas for his paintings. Imagine... If you were allowed to sit for one hour in front of an original Vincent Van Gogh painting, maybe The Starry Night, maybe another one of his masterpieces, but for that one hour, the only thing that you did was get three inches from that masterpiece and study one of those impasto, thick, special brushstrokes. And after an hour in front of Vincent Van Gogh, you left, and the only thing you had to say was what that one thick brushstroke looked like. You probably could not truly say you saw the masterpiece. You saw the painting. Friends, when we engage the Word of God, we often approach it like that. I often approach it like that. We study here verse by verse. We often look at God's word one brushstroke at a time. And there is a looming danger when that is your only approach to scripture. And that is you do not see the big picture. And friends, when we come to the turning point of the book of Mark, we cannot get caught up in every little detail, in every little brushstroke, we must see the big picture. We must see Mark's masterpiece. So this morning, 
we are going to walk through these four passages again to see the big picture. These are not four different paintings. These are four different brushstrokes that are aimed to show us one great picture of who Jesus is. With all that in mind, the first passage that we're going to go back to is the overflowing evidence at the second picnic. The overflowing evidence in verses 1 to 10. If you were here over a month ago in October, we were in Mark chapter 6 and we talked about a picnic with Jesus. Jesus fed 5,000 people with five pieces of bread and some fish. I gave you three leftovers to take home. We looked at three words that teach us about Jesus, and every single one of them are in verses 1 to 10. We saw the compassion of Jesus. We saw the power of Jesus, and we saw the satisfaction of Jesus. Every single one of them are here again. Now, the major difference in chapter 6 and chapter 8 is who is at the picnic. Jesus is still in Gentile territory. Like he was in chapter 7, Jesus is now spreading his compassion, his power, and his satisfaction to people outside of Israel. If you go back to the conversation he had with the Syrophoenician woman, what's happening at this second picnic is the crumbs are literally being shared with the dogs. Jesus is on full display. In verse 8 this time, though, there are seven baskets of leftovers. But the the bread and the fish are not the only things that are overflowing. The disciples have seen two picnics. They've seen Jesus feed 9,000 plus people. They have overflowing evidence of who Jesus is. Jesus is everything he claims to be. In John chapter 6 verse 35, he has told them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Twice, these men, these disciples, have seen Jesus do what only God can do. Take a single meal and multiply it so that it feeds scores, thousands of people at once. And yet, it's not enough to convince them. It's not enough to let the disciples make a verdict. They've seen Jesus do all of this. Imagine if you saw Jesus do all of that. And left, still not knowing what you thought about Jesus. But that's exactly where the disciples are. They're stuck. Friends, before we move to the second passage, do we need any clearer warning? It doesn't matter how close to Jesus you are. It doesn't matter how long you've been close to Jesus. It doesn't matter how much you've seen Jesus do. That's not the point. You should be wary of getting so close to Jesus and not letting it change your life. Even these men who at one point in the book of Mark were fishing and Jesus comes to them and and says, follow me, and they drop their careers, they drop their family and follow Jesus, but they still don't get it. And we know that when we come to the second brushstroke in Mark chapter 8, the second passage is the looming danger In the boat, we see this in verses 11 to 21. 
before Jesus can debrief with his disciples about what's happened at this second picnic, there's an interruption from the Pharisees in verses 11 to 13. They ask Jesus for a sign. But these guys don't really care. They don't really want to know about Jesus. They're not interested in learning. They're testing him. The words that is used to describe the Pharisees' interaction with Jesus here are the same words used to describe the devil's interaction with Jesus in the desert. This is a second temptation of Jesus. They're not open to the gospel at all. In fact, in Mark chapter 3, we see the Pharisees are already planning to kill Jesus. This is why Jesus sighs deeply. He's exasperated. He's done with them. He's frustrated to the point where he is finished even trying to reach these guys. Verse 12, he refuses to show his power. He refuses to show them a sign. Jesus closes the door on these Pharisees. And Jesus and his disciples return to the boat. But guess what? The danger has not been left behind. They left behind the Pharisees. But the danger is with them on the boat. Verse 15, Jesus says, watch out. You know, if Jesus tells you to watch out, it's probably a good idea to listen. Jesus says, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Leaven is a substance that would make bread rise. It would start in one corner of the bread and move its way to the rest of of the loaf. In the Bible, this picture is used to de- describe evil that spreads and infects the heart. So Jesus is telling the, the disciples on the boat, don't let the Pharisees' unbelief influence you. Don't let their doubts change the way you think. Don't let their stubbornness become a part of your attitude. The disciples don't hear him. What are they doing? The disciples are freaking out right now. They're having a panic attack. Every time they get on a boat with Jesus, something bad happens and they they get crazy with fear. Whether it's a storm or Jesus walking on the water or now, they don't have anything to eat. You, You get the irony in that, right? They are just coming back from the second time Jesus has taken multiple loaves to feed thousands of people. Now they got one loaf with 13 people. If anything, this would be the smallest thing they've ever seen Jesus do just to make a meal for them on the boat. But they are panicking. Jesus, he says, what are you doing? And he, he breaks it down with them. He says, first picnic. How many people were there? 5,000? what happened? We had all these baskets left over. We had plenty to eat. Everybody was satisfied. Yeah, right. Okay, second picnic, guys. What happened? 4,000 people. Hey, yeah, yeah. What happened? Same thing. Plenty to eat. Everybody's satisfied. Jesus looks right into their eyes. Do you not get it? Are your hearts hardened? I've fed 10,000 people. I've satisfied them all. I've got nothing to show for it on this boat. Listen, disciples, you're missing the point. 
You are missing the big picture. Brothers and sisters, this is the looming danger. They know all the numbers. They know all the facts. They can do all the math. They're aware of Jesus' work, but they've never applied it. They know Jesus is compassionate. They know Jesus is powerful. They know Jesus is satisfied, but when they are hungry, they don't believe he is compassionate enough to feed them. That Jesus is powerful enough to change their boats. That Jesus is satisfying enough to leave them completely full. They know the facts, but they don't believe the truth. And friends, Mark is showing us there is a thin line between failing to understand like the disciples and refusing to believe like the Pharisees. That's why he tells them to watch out. There is a thin line between being slow and being stubborn. Do we recognize, friends, the danger of being slow to believe? How many of us just take grace for granted? And God may continue to speak to us over and over again through his word, and we think that we just have time to wait. Maybe a later season in life we'll turn to Jesus. Maybe later when things are more comfortable we'll believe. Maybe next week when things aren't so hectic and I don't have so much to think about, then I'll make a change. Maybe when it won't impact my relationship so much or my life so much, maybe then I'll believe and take Jesus at his word and move and follow him. Friends, Jesus is saying the looming danger there is you are one step away from outright rejection and unbelief. You are closer to the Pharisees' rejection of Jesus than you are to true salvation. Don't presume God's grace. If God has given you the grace to show up one day and hear his word, act then, not later. So why the book of Hebrews, chapter 3, verse 15, the writer says, As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And that's where the disciples find themselves. But there's one word of optimism, and it's the one word I'm clinging to right now. Jesus says it twice. He says, yet. Verse 17 and verse 21. Just look at verse 21. Jesus says, do you not yet understand? Even in the midst of failure, Jesus has not given up hope on the disciples. And what takes place next in another brushstroke, which we usually separate we can see why Jesus hasn't given up hope on them. In verses 22 to 26, we see the hope-giving power outside of the village. The hope-giving power. You look long enough at this miracle, and you're going to ask the question. This is the only miracle where Jesus' power and, and, and work doesn't happen immediately. He goes to heal the blind man, says, do you see anything? That never comes out of Jesus' mouth. He knows when he uses his power that healing is going to come. But for some reason, he asks his brother, do you see anything? And he does, but not really. So then there's a second movement. Jesus moves to heal this blind man. There's no question this time. 
And Mark tells us he sees everything clearly. Now, why does this happen? Why is this going on? There is no flaw in Jesus' work. It's not because he messed up. It's not because this blind man had a weakness in his faith. That's what a lot of prosperity gospel preachers would like to tell you. Mark makes this specific brushstroke right here because it has everything to do with the disciples' failure to see. The blind man is the disciples. And what's happening to the blind man is happening to the disciples. And so when we read this miracle, we should hear the echo of verse 18. When Jesus tells the disciples, do you not see? Their discipleship, friends, is a two-step cure. Their following Jesus is a process. Their This physical miracle with the blind man is pointing to the disciples' spiritual need. Did you see this? What's happening with the disciples is they're blind. They cannot see who Jesus is. And what they're going to need is for Jesus to give the power to bring sight like he did to this blind man. Ultimately, how that's going to happen is not something they do. A blind man can't make himself see. Why John Edwards writes, the ability to see both physically and spiritually is a gift of God. Psalm 146, verse 8, the Lord opens the eyes of the blind. We looked at Isaiah 35 in full a week or so ago, and Isaiah writes, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. Jesus is trying to show us and the disciples he is the one that has the power to make the blind man see. He is the one that has the power to make us who are slow to believe, slow to understand, stubborn, resisting, rejecting, to see him more clearly, to see who he is. And it only begins to take place in the last brushstroke of this chapter that we're going to look at, the burning question at the turning point. Let's read that brushstroke together. Verses 27 to 30. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. There's three changes happening all at once right here at this turning point. There is a geographic change. The phrase on the way that Mark uses is leading the way to Jerusalem. Jesus has been wandering around Galilee, wandering around the sea, wandering off into Gentile territory. But here at Mark chapter 8, he and his disciples make a turn towards the cross. It's not just a geographic change, but there is a change in activity. As we continue in the book of Mark, we will not see very many more miracles. We will not see very many more healings, exorcisms. Things of that nature, Jesus now will begin to teach. 
He will begin to teach about the cross and what it means and what a disciple looks like and what it means to follow him as a savior who will be crucified. And there is a change in spiritual understanding. Jesus starts with an easy question. It's one everyone in this room would feel comfortable answering. Who do other people say that I am? We ask that kind of question in a prayer meeting, in a small group. We are always going to get more answers. People will freely share all the time what other people have to say. These people had all kinds of different ideas about who Jesus was. Some said John, some said Elijah, but don't miss the point. All of them agree Jesus is just a prophet. Jesus, in the people's eyes, is something they've seen before. He's just the newest version of a teacher from God. What are the people doing? They're missing the point, just like the disciples. They don't see the big picture. They're close. Moses promised a greater prophet. But Jesus is more than just the latest version. Jesus is more than just a good teacher. And friends, how many people today believe the same thing? It's not like we've really changed anything. Lots of people are good with Jesus. Muslims are good with Jesus. Hindus are good with Jesus. Buddhists are good with Jesus. They all say he's a good teacher. They all say he's enlightened. They all say he's a prophet. But they're all missing the point. And friends, we could go on and on and on about that, but that is not the burning question. That is not the point. So let's get there. Verse 29, Jesus says, Who do you say that I am? You, before God, who do you say that I am? And what's your answer? Peter says, you are the Christ. The word is the Messiah, the Jewish expected anointed one, the king, the prophet, the priest, David's branch that will bring justice and righteousness to the people of God. And after all of the misunderstanding, after all of them missing the point and not getting it and not seeing it, what happens right at this moment, brothers and sisters, is a blind man sees. In the book of Matthew, Jesus tells Peter, you see this not because you understood, but because God has revealed this to you. And then in verse 30, Jesus again tells Peter, don't say anything. You got the answer right, but don't tell anybody the answer. And the reason he does that is because while Peter sees, he only sees trees walking. He doesn't really see everything. And that becomes the driving point of the next three chapters of the book of Mark is Jesus explaining the cross and the the disciples not really seeing it, not seeing it all the way, and Jesus applying it to them. Because, friends, that's not really going to happen until the cross and the resurrection happen. 
What happens at the cross? Peter, this guy who got the answer right, runs away. Denies him three times. Because he doesn't truly see until the risen Son of God comes to him. He says, Peter, do you love me? And then the blind man sees everything. Before we really press the point, just think with me, friends. Think about the irony of the way we approach this chapter, the way we approach the Bible. Mark chapter 8, we get to that first paragraph, that first brushstroke. And if we were having small group, we would spend all of our time talking about what's the differences between the 4,000 and the 5,000. Were there really two picnics? Could this just have been one picnic and they got the numbers confused? Why is the word for basket different in chapter 6 than chapter 8? And then we get to the next paragraph and we talk about the leaven. And we get caught up in discussion on why did he bring in the group that follows Herod in here? Why didn't he just stick to the Pharisees? And then we get to the next passage And we see Jesus heal this blind man, and we get tripped up and caught up on that brushstroke and wonder why Jesus had to heal the blind man twice. What was wrong with his faith? And in the chapter where Jesus confronts the disciples on getting so caught up on minor details, they miss the point. We do the same thing. Friends, how many times do we come in and read the Word, come to church, listen to the Word of God, have it preached before us, have Jesus presented before us, and we ask all these minor questions and think about all these minor details. We leave thinking about minor details, and we never are confronted with the question and answer the question, who do we say that Jesus is? Friend, you may have seen God move all kinds of ways in your life. You may have tasted his goodness. You may have felt his power. You may have seen his compassion. You may have seen his work. You may know a lot of answers. You may be able to do the math. You may be able to to supply the, the stories and the facts of Jesus and the gospel. But have you ever come to the point where you knew in your heart who Jesus Christ is and what that means for your soul. Friends, life with God happens at a turning point. And so many of us have been satisfied just to see trees when we don't see the tree Jesus died on to free us from our sin and his resurrection to bring us victory. Friends, there is a looming danger in our super spiritual religious lives that we see the painting of Jesus and we appreciate the minor brushstrokes, but we've never experienced the painting so that when we leave, our life is transformed and we're lifted higher and we know the artist as our personal friend and our personal savior. Friends, there must be a life change. 
You must have a before and an after. You have to go from missing the point to making the point your foundation for everything. The question is not, do you leave church and and see anything? It's, do you live your life because you see everything? And how Jesus changes everything. You have to go from knowing about Jesus to knowing Jesus. You have to go from having all these earthly concerns and questions and having this eternal security. Go from focusing on the minors and the little arguments of life and focusing on the major truths and hopes of the gospel. You have to have a turning point where you go from death to life. Now I want you to assess and ask yourself, Have you had that kind of transformation and turning point in your life? Or have you just had the steady diet of spiritual truth and good ideas of God, but it's never changed everything about you? Friend, if you've never experienced that turning point, you are missing the point. Jesus is the one who he says he is. John 17, verse 3, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Allow me to press the point just a little further. Do not take the love and grace of God for granted to the point that you would dare leave this morning having seen the brushstroke of God's salvation in Christ, but not making it your own. Not turning from your current life and sin and putting your trust in what Jesus did on the cross, his death for your sins and his resurrection from the grave. Do not leave here until you grasp that to the point that you see and you hear and you feel and you experience the love of God like you have never experienced it before. Repent and believe. And Jesus will be your everything. Friends, he is the point. We need to hear that. Those of us who belong to him, we need to hear that we are not the point. He is the the point of every sermon. He is the point of every passage of scripture that you study. He is the point of every song that we sing. He is the point of every prayer we pray. He is the point of every word that we speak. He is the point of every activity that we do. He is the point of everything in our lives. John 5 verse 39. Jesus says, you search the scriptures. Because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. How many of us, friends, sit on this boat with Jesus, and we worry because we have no bread? Let me translate that. How many of us encounter God? with opportunities to worship him, to study his inspired word, to have his Holy Spirit move in our lives. How many of us have that opportunity and we leave caught up and concerned and worried about those minor details? How things are going to work out at work, 
where you're going to get money to pay that bill. How things are going to get fixed with your relative. How you're going to muster up the energy to survive the week. Friends, we need to stop just watching Jesus, watching Jesus' compassion and power, and we need to apply it. We need to believe it. We need to make it real in our lives. Friends, don't get in the habit of coming to the church, opening the Bible, and being satisfied with just facts and trivia. See Jesus for who he is. Don't let little things get in the way and distract you. Remember who Jesus is. Friends, this is a hard time. It's a hard season. It's real easy to get to this point, to get so far down, to get so caught up that when you look in your life, the only thing you see is the details. When you look in the mirror, the only thing you see is that brushstroke of your life and the trials that you're going through and the struggles that you have. And you look at that painting and it just looks dark. Only grays, only shadows, only darkness. And the reason that it feels that way and your whole life feels that way is because you haven't stepped 10 feet back and looked at the whole painting. And you've forgotten that the point is not you and not your experience and not your feelings and not what you're going through. The point is Jesus Christ. And if you would remember what he's done for you, if you would remember his work on the cross, if you would remember his sorrows and his shadows and his sadness and his suffering and his rejection and his death on the cross and then his resurrection from all of that, from death, from the grave and the power that he gives to you in the Holy Spirit, the painting would look a little bit different. You got to see the big picture. Psalm 103, verse 2, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Friends, when the gospel transforms us, it should drive all of our thoughts, all of our decisions, every part of our life. And friends, when you take that gospel and share it with someone, when you take this Jesus, this message, the cross and the resurrection, and you share the good news. Can I give you an encouragement, please? Stay on point. Stick to the message. You may think that what your friend needs to hear is just this certain brushstroke, this certain aspect. They need to see this angle. Friends, there's only one thing that they need to hear, and that is Jesus Christ and himself crucified. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 to 5, Paul says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Brothers and sisters, we can do that. There's not a one of us that can't go in weakness and go in trembling and not point anybody to ourselves because we're not the point anyway. We point people to the Savior, to the Messiah, to the Christ. 
Look, if they don't turn to Jesus right away, if you go and share and they reject you, if you go and share and they don't hear you, if you go and share and they don't see, you can be encouraged because that's how Jesus felt with the disciples. And if you're honest and think about your life, that's what happened with Jesus and you. Sometimes salvation is a process. Sometimes being blind and made to see is a two-step process. And you don't know when God's going to change their life. But you know the one who can. And you know the word and the message, the power of salvation that can bring change to their life. Like Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, preach the word, but do it with complete patience and teach. Friend, all of these matters are important. We could apply this idea so many different ways. But they're only important in relation to the big picture. You've had time today to stare at Mark's masterpiece. What matters most is not that you appreciate every little detail. What matters today is not if you can leave and tell me something about that one corner, that one brushstroke that you stood and looked at. What matters, friends, is that you and I leave transformed. That we see the artist, we see the master, that we see the Christ. Friend, once you see him, you will see that everything in your life, everything in existence is to him and for him and connected to him. Friend, who do you say that Jesus is? May we all, with Peter, be able to say, he is the Christ. Let us pray.